Church, let me invite you to open up God's Word with me this morning to the book of Revelation. Be in Revelation chapter 7 today. If you're using the Pew Bible, uh, you can find this text on page 995. But uh, these are our missionary partners. Uh, many of them, most of them, supported uh, financially in some capacity through your faithful giving to the church. Uh, others of them, the recipients of teams on a periodic basis from this church. And these missionary partners get it. They get it. Friends, they understand the grace of God and are spending their lives to make Jesus Christ known among the lost. May we be a people who pray for them. May we be a people who support them. May we be a people who learn from them and join with them. Let's, let's be a people who engage the world with the message of salvation in Jesus Christ so that we might contribute to seeing people from every nation uh, come to know and follow Jesus Christ so that we might be a people who contribute to the Great Commission being realized. Since God secures our future... We endure, evangelize, and serve Christ here. These folks understand that, and our text calls us to be about this. Since God Almighty secures our our future, our future is secure with Him. We endure and we evangelize and we serve Jesus Christ here. You see, as Christians, our salvation is anchored in the past and something that's already taken place. It's anchored in what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary for us, but it's lived out in the present. It's anchored in the past, it's lived in the present, and it's looking toward the future. Our text calls us, indeed God's Word calls us, the Scriptures call us to understand it, I believe, that way. So let me invite you to join me looking at uh, the Scriptures. We're in the book of uh, Revelation. If you're visiting with us, we've been studying this book, this book over the last uh, several weeks, and we're going to continue uh, doing so. But today we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 7, and just uh, a, a brief uh, synopsis of the, the contextual background here. So this is written at the end, near the end of the first century A.D. Uh, John, who is an apostle, uh, follower of Christ, one of the disciples of Jesus, is an old man by this point, and he's been exiled. He's a prisoner on the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea off the coast of modern-day Turkey because he's been preaching the gospel of Jesus. Uh, And uh, the Roman powers that be are not so fond of that message because it threatens their power, and so they are seeking to squelch it. But even so, through a series of visions uh, given through Jesus Christ to John, uh, the church is called to remain faithful, to stand fast, to witness and to trust, to proclaim the gospel And anticipate the return of Jesus Christ. So as you find your place in Revelation chapter 7. Let me invite you to join me standing for the reading of of God's word. This is a fairly lengthy text. I'm going to read the whole chapter this morning. So I would invite you to stand whether in body or in spirit. As we hear from the Lord. Let's hear God's word. John writes. He says after this I saw four angels. Standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. 
Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where do they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is alive and active. We thank you that we have it here. Thank you for the privilege of reading it, of hearing it, Lord, of preaching it, of responding to it. So, Lord, lead us now. Guide us by your your Spirit's presence and power. May we hear the truths of your word. May we rightly respond to them and apply them to our lives as your people today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, you may be seated. The first truth that I want to point out from Revelation chapter 7 is this, that God claims followers of Jesus Christ. God claims followers of Jesus Christ. He claims them as his own. Chapter 6 that we looked at last week uh, begins by describing various judgment cycles of God. Uh, We have the seals, and then we have the trumpets, and then uh, later in Revelation we'll have the bowls. These judgment cycles of God, these series of seven, and written in such a way as to convey an increase in severity. Scriptures teach here, they're poured out, God's judgment poured out on unbelievers for a couple of reasons, according to the book of Revelation, according to the scriptures. Uh, First, as punishment for wickedness, but also as a warning a warning to repent, a call to repent, repeated calls uh, for repentance before it's too late, before the final judgment. Now we come to chapter 7, which is an interlude. It's the first of a couple interludes in these judgment series. It's a pause. It's a delay. Only the first six seals have been opened, according to the text. Four angels of chapter 7, verse 1, recall the four horses and their four riders of chapter 6. 
I think perhaps not so much describing the next sequence of events as if chapter 7 comes right after chapter 6 in the order of things, so much so as emphasizing through this message, through this vision, that these judgments are not judgments upon God's people. Words, God's people are not going to receive these. They are sealed. They are protected from God's wrath. You see, an angel shouted in verse 3, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. It would be amiss if I didn't state this morning that scholars are deeply divided over the identity of these 144,000 believers. And there are really two main possibilities. So I'm going to mention those and then press into that and carry on. Firstly, they're either Jewish converts to faith in Christ or this number is representative, symbolically representative of all followers of Jesus Christ. Now, let me say that and then back up and sort of say this. It doesn't really matter. Certainly it's significant. Certainly we want to interpret it in the right way. We want to press into a particular uh, interpretation of Scripture and really to Depending on how you approach the book of Revelation determines the answer to that. But it doesn't really matter because God describes all Christians in these terms. In other words, God claims both Jewish followers of Jesus Christ and Gentile followers of Jesus Christ as his own. Now, these truths are true of all believers. But I think that 144,000 is symbolic of the church and here's why because the book of revelation has already made some distinctions it's already made uh, distinctions between those who claim to be jews and are not chapter 2 verse 9 and uh, chapter 3 verse 9 and verse 12 and those who faithfully follow the messiah there's a distinction made between those who claim to be god's people and yet are not following christ and those who whether jew or gentile are faithfully following christ Furthermore, the New Testament depicts the promises to Abraham and his offspring as being fulfilled through Christ as the gospel is taken to the nations of the world. For example, Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. This is one example of this truth. It says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Verse 29, hear this. If you belong to Christ... If you're a follower of Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In addition, the number 12 signifies the people of God in Scripture. We've seen that already in the book of Revelation. But listen to the words of of one uh, scholar, one New Testament scholar on this. He says, just as the number of elders before God's throne, 24, signified the people of God down through the ages because it was the sum of 12 tribes plus 12 apostles so the number 144,000 is the quotient of 12 tribes times 12 apostles this quotient is multiplied by a thousand to indicate the vastness of the number of the people of God with a special emphasis on the large size of that company now friends I'm not going to die fighting on that hill, but I will say uh, I find this interpretation very logical and very convincing according to the Scriptures. But either way, however we take this number, whether the 144,000 represents Jewish converts to faith in Christ or refers to all of the church, God claims 
followers of Jesus Christ. He marks them as his own. God marks them as his own. What a glorious truth that God claims those who trust in Jesus as his people. Christians are sealed and secured by God. We see this throughout the New Testament. For example, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. Paul writes, he says, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, The Lord knows those who are his. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He says, And you also were included in Christ. You believers, you Christians, uh, were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And then finally, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. It says, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. We've sang these truths already beautifully this morning. We are his. The name of Christ is on us and will be forever and ever. So brother or sister, the moment you repented and trusted in Jesus for salvation, God marked you as his own. He claims you. He says, that, that man is mine. That, that girl is, is mine. They're mine. They, these people are mine. This is one of my children. This is my child. God claims followers of Jesus Christ. He marks them as his own and he spares them from his wrath. The Bible's clear on this. God spares believers, spares followers of Jesus from his wrath. God's seal in this text is meant to encourage Christians living in hard times. The truth is, we've seen this already, we'll see it again. Our lives certainly support this, that you may face suffering here. You will face suffering. You will face hard times here. You may face opposition or persecution. You may face tumors or depression, addiction or abuse. You may face all sorts of tribulation and turmoil that comes with living in a broken world. But you will not face the wrath of God. Believer, you will not face the wrath of God for Christ Jesus took it for you. Can I get an amen? If you've ever been in a forest before a timber cut, and you probably saw trees that were flagged, marked, setting aside a boundary, don't, don't cut any farther than this, or, or don't uh, cut this tree, spare this one. You can cut and harvest any other tree, but leave this one alone. It's the blood of the Passover lamb across the doorpost. The Israelites were preparing to leave Egypt. Spared them from God's judgment. Blood of the true Passover lamb applied to believers in Christ spares them, spares us from God's judgment. God marks them as his own. He spares them from his wrath and he prepares them to serve Christ the King. God prepares his people, servants of God, to serve Christ the King. You see, the listing of the 12 tribes here recalls other similar Old Testament lists of troops for battle. You see this several places in the Old Testament. listing of Israelite troops for battle. And notice in this particular list, and by the way, those lists vary quite a bit, ordered in different ways, but notice particularly on this list, who's listed first? Judah. Judah was not the eldest son. 
But he's listed first because his line produced the Davidic king and Messiah. In other words, the leader comes from his tribe. These 12 groupings of 12,000 depict the army of the Messiah, the army of Christ. Christ is our commander-in-chief as we follow Christ. We follow Christ and follow Jesus Christ. Our ultimate leader, the true king, our master and Lord. See, those who follow him will be victorious. And yet we often look elsewhere for victory, don't we? Far too often we look to worldly leaders. Far too often we look to presidents and political parties to be and to do for us what only Christ can be and do for us. Tim Keller reflects on this truth. He writes, this may be the reason why so many people now respond to U.S. political trends in such an extreme way. They become agitated and fearful for the future. They've put the kind of hope in their political leaders and policies that was once reserved for God and the work of the gospel. Church, our ultimate hope cannot lie in America or any political party platform any more than John's or any first century believers could lie in Domitian and the Roman Empire. Our agenda is not so much to change the world, but to follow the Lamb of God wherever He goes. Revelation chapter 14, verse 4. The Lamb who said, My kingdom is not of this world. He said, If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. See, the battle of the 144,000 troops is not a physical battle. It's a spiritual battle. It's not won by... Uh, the weapons or the strategies of the world, but one by being faithful witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ until the very end. It requires putting on the armor of God so that words may be given us so that we will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which we could become ambassadors in chains. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Our battle, our mission, believer, is the great commission The call to make known the mystery of the gospel. And according to the Bible, we will one day embody the success of that mission. As we join, verse 9, a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. You see, herein, chapter 7, lies the answer to the question with which chapter 6 ends. Chapter 6, verse 17, for the great day of the wrath has come, the great day of God's wrath has come, and who can stand? Who can withstand it? The multitude can. The believers can. God's people who have trusted in Jesus Christ can. They can stand before God's throne. For the Lamb took God's wrath for them. Through His life, Jesus met the righteous requirement of God, and through His death, Jesus received God's judgment of our sins. And therefore, those covered by the blood of the Lamb can enter into God's presence where He will satisfy them forever. Friends, God will satisfy His multi-ethnic multitude forever. That's the picture we see here. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. God will satisfy His multi-ethnic multitude forever. If you need a call to missions, this is it. But here, uh, Daniel Aiken, one of our Southern Baptist uh, seminary presidents, reflect on the multitude described in this text. He he writes, he says, of the 11,243 people groups in the world, each is present and represented. 
of the 3.7 billion persons still not having an adequate opportunity to hear the gospel, the Lamb is reaching out and calling them unto Himself by the Spirit and through His people. The gospel is going to be heard and believed among all the peoples of the earth. The nations will rejoice. The nations will worship. Friends, the innumerable multitude depicted around the throne of heaven recalls God's promises to Abraham. Genesis chapter 15, verse 5. Remember that story. God took Abraham outside. He said, look up at the sky and count the stars. Go ahead, Abraham. If you can do it, go ahead and count them. He said, so shall your offspring be. Friends, Galatians 3, verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. See, it's in chapter 5 where John heard this title, this Old Testament title, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, yet saw its New Testament fulfillment, a lamb looking as if he had been slain. So here he, he-, he hears uh, the-, the list of the sealed sons of Israel, the sealed sons of Jacob, and yet he looks and he sees the New Testament fulfillment, a great multitude that no one could count. Two portraits of the same reality describing some Christians as they already are and describing all Christians as they will one day be. Who is this great multitude of heaven? It's followers of the Lamb from every nation, tribe, people, and language who have endured the trials and tribulations of this life with perseverance and faith, even martyrdom for many of them, and have entered into God's presence. See, Jesus prepared his followers for this. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. He says, In this world you will have trouble or tribulation or affliction. Or suffering, same word that John uses. Chapter 7, verse 14, same word he uses to describe his own circumstances. Chapter 1, verse 9 of Revelation. But Jesus said, take heart. I have overcome the world. And Peter wrote a similar message. He said, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. If we take the Bible seriously, church, We have to acknowledge that suffering in this life is the norm for followers of Jesus Christ, for followers of the Lamb. And yet they overcome and they enter God's presence by following the Lamb wherever He goes, even to the point of death. Jesus says, take heart. I've overcome the world. I've overcome it. I've overcome sin and suffering, evil and death itself. God will clothe His people in Christ's purity. He will clothe His in Christ's purity. That's why we'll be wearing white robes, because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If we realize this, if we understand salvation by God's grace, our self-assurance and our self-confidence here and now in this life will reflect our true identity in Jesus Christ. God will clothe the multi-ethnic multitude in Christ's purity and they will delight in worshiping him. The multitude. Every nation, tribe, people, and language will delight in worshiping them, the palm branches in their hands here. Recall other Old Testament texts depicting celebration and adoration and anticipation and rejoicing. There's, there's no drudgery in heaven, just pure delight in the Lamb. Delight that's embraced through meaningful service. Meaningful service. Verse 15, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. You see, in heaven, the purpose for which we were made will be fulfilled. And when we are able to embrace our purpose without the hindrance of sin, we will be satisfied. Meaningful service and comfortable shelter. 
comfortable shelter. Verse 15, And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. A picture of uninterrupted comfort and a picture of eternal satisfaction. Eternal satisfaction. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will be our shepherd. He will lead us to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. The Lamb will be our shepherd and we will lack nothing. We shall not want. Sealed or secured. Since God secures our future, we endure, we evangelize, and we serve Christ here. Are you sealed and secure? Are you following the Lamb? Follow Christ and receive eternal salvation. Welcome God's seal upon you and serve the Lamb. Let's be a people who serve the Lamb. You see, if the the portrait described in Revelation 7 rightly depicts who God is and how He operates and how He claims and will forever care for us, how could we not serve Him here? How could we not serve Him? Serving the Lamb means daily surrender and self-sacrifice for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of people from every nation hearing this gospel. Believer, for you, it it may mean considering one of our Meadowbrook mission trips this year. Uh, Serving the Lamb may mean considering a longer-term assignment, moving to a place where there are fewer followers of Christ for the sake of others coming to hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus. Serving the Lamb may mean befriending your next door neighbor. The express purpose of sharing and showing the love of Jesus Christ with them. There's all sorts of specifics. What it might mean for you, what it might mean for me to serve the Lamb, but it certainly means living our lives for the glory of Jesus Christ. May we be a people who do that. And Father, we thank you for the chance to gather this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word, to read your word, to hear it taught, Lord, to speak it, to sing your praises and to respond to you. Father, I pray that as we consider what it means to know and to follow Jesus Christ, as we consider what it means to serve the Lamb, Lord, that your spirit would guide us this morning. Lord, would you guide us now? Lord, would you impress these truths on our hearts and our minds that we might Take them uh, to heart and act upon them in a way that glorifies your name. Lead us for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.